Uh, if this is your first time here, this is an interesting morning for you to be here, uh, tropical storm morning, but uh, thank you for being here. And I'm Brian Habig, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, that was Jonathan Davis, well, and it still is Jonathan Davis, uh, present tense, who's leading us in worship. But we just started a new series last week in the book of Hebrews. This is a book in the New Testament, we just got started last week. So we're going to pick back up where we left off, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin, that's the passage that we'll be looking at. Let me do a quick review, and then I want to um, pick it back up, read the passage, and look into it. This is, as I said, it's a book in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote it. There have been some good guesses. There have been some very well-educated guesses, and I bet one of them is right, but we don't know definitively who wrote it. But it is part of uh, the, the scriptures that have been recognized by the church as the Word of God, and it not only uh, coincides with the Law and the Prophets. It coincides with the other teaching of the Apostles. So it's in what we call the canon. It's in the Bible. C-A-N-O-N. But we don't know who wrote it. Uh, we don't know what, what form it is exactly or what genre it is. It's, it's like a letter, but there's some ways that it doesn't follow conventions of letters of that period. Uh, there's ways that it's sort of like a sermon, but uh, it's not completely like a sermon. So some people have said maybe the genre is it's a sermon letter. That might be as good a guess as, as I can give. But this is probably the most important point to know is that there's a lot we don't know about the, the circumstances and the context of why whoever wrote this wrote this. And if you hear me say he, and you might be sitting there thinking, do we know that it was a he that wrote Hebrews? There's one place where the writer refers to himself and he uses the masculine pronoun. So if I say he, I'm not trying not to be presumptuous, but we do think it was a man. Um, but the reason that he wrote this is that you've got a group of people, and they're, they're from a Jewish background. And the writer must be from that same background because he keep, when he talks about these things, he keeps saying we and us, like these are mutual concerns that they have and in uh, a mutual destiny that they're working toward. And the problem seems to be that there have been Jewish people who've been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and on the front end professed belief, but they're now being lured to just return to Judaism. And really the whole of Hebrews is a response to that about why that is not wise. And the writer is, is pushing them toward Jesus. And we started out last week with this just right out of the gates. He talks about how special Jesus is, truly God, but truly man. And the last thing he says is sort of, I think, weird to us because it's not, I think, much of a struggle for us. He says, Jesus' name is more superior than any other name, even angels. And you might be thinking, you know, I have my spiritual struggles, but that's not the one I'm dealing with right now where angels preoccupy me too much. And here's what I want to say, and I'll read the passage. That may not be your struggle, but there's something up underneath what they're doing that is our struggle. So if, if you've got first century ethnically Jewish readers and they're preoccupied with angels. They're doing something that we're doing just in a different form. So let's look at this and pick back up about angels. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, as we already have, we want to say thank you again for a place that's well-lit and air-conditioned and a place for us to gather in our downtown and to gather not in our name but in Jesus' name and to worship you and as part of that to listen to you. So help us now to listen to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you were here last week, I started out by framing something in terms of you know, how something looked to me when I was little and how it looks to me now that I'm, I'm a little bit older. And I, I want to frame something in, kind of in the same way this morning. And, uh, and it's international students. You know, when I, when I was in college, I went to Mississippi State University and we had, a, we had a pretty good many, for, I thought, for Mississippi, a pretty good many international students. And a lot of them were graduate students. Quite a, uh, quite a few from Asia and quite a few from India. And big engineering program, and a lot of those folks were in that program. And so I think when I was you know, in college and uh, still in my teens, I would see students like that and think, yeah, I mean, you'll, you see that at universities, and that's great that they came over here. I'm glad it worked out for them to come over here. But... You know, if you've ever traveled abroad and if you've ever spent any time abroad, as you get older, you realize what a huge thing that is for someone to come over here and spend years studying here. And I've, I've never lived in another country beyond four weeks. My family got to live in England for four weeks. And just the, the preparation for that and the paperwork for that. And I remember there was one day where my wife, Dana, wasn't feeling well, and we had to find a doctor, and we weren't, you know, it wasn't our system where we knew what to do. It was the British system, and trying to navigate that, 
and find a doctor. And you think about the student who comes over here from India or China or Africa. And they live here for years. And, and maybe they come and they're not going to go back Christmas. They're not going to go back for the summer. They're just here till they finish. What a break that is. That they're away from those holidays. They're away from uh, their kitchen and the smells of the kitchen and all that. The older I get, I just I, I kind of look more on awe at you know students from India in the ICAR program here through Clemson or something like that. That is a window into people who leave a lifelong practice of another religion. And, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly someone who has roots that may go back a millennium plus in another religion, and they come to know Jesus and become a Christian. Because, you know, like, I think if you've grown up around the church and you've grown up in the United States and maybe you grew up and you've never thought you were not a Christian, maybe you had Christian parents and you've always viewed yourself as a Christian, uh, you might think, oh, man, that's great. I heard about this guy who grew up Muslim and he became a Christian and, you know, go team. And not to realize, all right, he or she have left family approval, family ways, the way they grew up worshiping, uh, the sound of the Quran, the, the sound of certain kinds of singing, uh, the, the way their community felt at Ramadan, or the way their community felt at a particular feast, the smells, the ritual, the roots, that they leave that to follow someone they can't see. And here's the thing. You know, there, there, you can find ritual in Christianity. You can find celebrations and rhythms and calendar stuff. But none of it is required. Christmas, Easter, great. We love them. We celebrate them. Not required. And there is precious little in the New Testament about here's exactly how to do a worship service. But here's what there's a lot about. You follow this Jesus whom you cannot see by faith. Now, can you kind of see how, for somebody that grew up ethnically Jewish, especially, by the way, there's a high probability, it's not a slam dunk, there's a high probability that the people who are receiving this letter live in or near Jerusalem, and it's before 70 A.D. when the temple is destroyed, so the temple is still functioning. Very likely that that's the case. And if that's the case, you think about what would it be like to have grown up around that and practiced there? The sights, the smells, the ritual, the rhythm of it, the calendar of it. To leave that, to follow someone you can't see. And they're being lured back to Judaism, the people who received this letter. So what, what does the writer put before them? And we started that last week, but I want to I mention a couple this morning. He's going to make a needed comparison and he's going to draw a needed conclusion. He's going to make a needed comparison and draw a needed conclusion. Now, what's the needed comparison? There's all this stuff about angels. And again, you might be thinking, I have my problems, but massive preoccupation with angels is just not really where I am this morning. All right, fair enough. But look, chapter 2, verse 2, because I think this will help make sense of it. The writer says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Now, what is that talking about? 
And there's not a lot in the Bible about this, but that seems to be a reference to the fact that by the first century, it was a pretty uh, rooted Jewish understanding and belief that when God gave the law at Mount Sinai, like the Ten Commandments, that the law was delivered in some way by angels. And this is actually stated twice in the New Testament. Um, The first martyr, Stephen, right before he was martyred, brought that up, that the law was delivered by angels. Uh, The apostle Paul, when he wrote this letter called Galatians, and he's talking a lot about the law and how we rightly use or wrongly use the law, and he brings up the fact that it was delivered by angels. Now, again, that might seem irrelevant. It might seem mysterious, or what does that have to do with me? But you have to understand, that's part of the first reader's life, is that angels help deliver the law of God. And in Judaism, the Torah, the law, is ultimate. Uh, When I was in Jerusalem in the spring, I met a man who was a a Hasidic Jew, an Orthodox Jew, and he was the only Hasidic Jew that I got to dialogue with me. And a friend of mine was with me. And he grabbed both our arms, like we were late getting to the bus because he grabbed our, our arms to talk to us about, I want you to know how much I love Torah. I want you to know how precious the Torah is. Like the law of God was ultimate to him. These folks have grown up in a world where that ultimate law was delivered by what? Angels. All right, so the writer says, all right, let's, let's think about angels. Let's think. Scripture says they're real. They come up in some of the most significant things that happen in the Bible. So what do we know about angels? Uh, look at verse 7. This is a quote from a psalm, and the writer's quoting a lot from the psalms. He says, uh, verse 7, This is from Psalm 104. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And if that rings a bell, that was in the call to worship. That was not a coincidence, by the way. Go down to verse 14. And this is not a quote, but he's just sort of, he's just explaining biblical teaching. He says, he states it as a question. Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So they're real. And Scripture talks about them. The Old and the New Testament talk about angels. And they show up in some of the most important episodes. So they're real. God made them, and they serve the people of God. So that's what they are. What are they not? This is really important. Look in verses 5 and 6. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, what point is the writer making? Angels are real. Angels are important. But has God ever said to an angel or to angels, you are my one and only son? No. He's only said that to the Messiah. He has said that to Jesus. Now, here's the next point. Look, starting in verse 8, I won't read this whole thing. Let me start in verse 7. Of the angels, he's making a comparison. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. They're amazing. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. Go down to verse 10. Here's a quote from another psalm. 
God says to the Messiah, you, Lord, and that means Yahweh, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Angels are great, but what are they not? Angels are not God's Son, and this one's really important, and angels are not God. And right out of the gates, the writer says, you've got to understand, Jesus isn't just an elevated teacher. Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is God. Like, He participated in creating the universe. And yes, I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Angels are great, but they're not that. Uh, what, okay, so what, what are we supposed to do with that? So we're going to go home and it's going to rain some more. And what do you do with that? Well, he, here's, a, here's a point I want, I want to try to drive home. Bible realities can crowd out the main point of the Bible. Let me say that again. Bible realities can crowd out the main point of the Bible. Angels are biblical realities. And as C.S. Lewis pointed out, you know, uh, every time someone in Scripture sees an angel, the first thing the angel has to say is what? Fear not. And he said, in most art, it looks like the first thing the angel would say would be, they're there. Angels are real, frightening ministers of fire. They're amazing. They're biblical realities. But they're not the main point of the Bible. And, you know, it's not just the writer of Hebrews that would argue that Jesus is the main point of the Bible. Jesus argued that he is the main point of the Bible. In multiple times. And no devout Jew would have said that. No devout Jew would say that. So what would that look like for us? And you know what? There's a million versions of it. For instance, I mean, it, and it can cut across lines, your preferences, political views, theological views. For some people, it might look like uh, biblical roles in a family. Now, does the Bible talk about biblical roles in a family? Absolutely it does. In fact, less than a month ago, we were finishing Proverbs, and we talked about uh, discipline and children and parenting. I almost chickened out of that sermon, but I preached it because there were so many Proverbs about that. And the Bible does talk about what is the role of a husband, what is the role of a wife, what is the role of a parent, what is the role of a child. It matters And those are biblical realities. But they're not God. Like you can be so into biblical roles of spouse or head of home or children that you can actually lose sight of what the book is mainly about. The book is mainly about the Son of God. It's mainly about Jesus. What about social justice? Uh, I just said to a group of people this past Thursday, I said, I I feel like at 50, I'm I'm just now starting to get my feet a little bit more wet about all that Scripture says about doing justice and loving mercy. And that the Old and the New Testament, they are replete with that kind of language. Doing justice. 
moving toward people, working for justice. Scripture talk about that? Absolutely. It is a biblical reality, but it is possible to fixate on that to the point where the main thing is us going out there and getting our hands dirty and transforming society and losing sight of the main thing. And the main thing that the Bible is about is Jesus. You can do it with sanctity of life. You can do it with gender issues. You can do it with issues of sexuality. Million different applications. Here's how one New Testament scholar put it. And this is so good because this is by a top shelf New Testament scholar, but he just put the cookies on the bottom shelf on this one. He says, what we must ask one another is this. What is it in the Christian faith that excites you? What consumes your time? Today, there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or another, abortion, pornography, homeschooling, women's ordination, for or against, economic justice, a certain style of worship, much more. The list varies from country to country. Not for a moment am I suggesting that we should not think about such matters or throw our weight behind some of them. But when such matters devour most of our time and our passion, each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? And that sounds right on the mark. When something in the Bible besides Jesus just preoccupies me. You know what? It can even be theology. There have been some great theologians that I would never want to debate. (laughs) I would never want to go up against in some kind of theological debate. They would clean my clock. Who may not be preoccupied with Jesus. They're preoccupied with the elegance of the system. Rather than Jesus, the beauty of Jesus. So, okay, that, so then that tees up the conclusion. What is the needed conclusion? You get all this that leads up to chapter 2, lots of quotes from Psalms. If it's Jewish readers, they knew those Psalms. Some of those would be song lyrics that they knew by heart. Boom, boom, boom. He applies them to say, Jesus is everything. So then, what's the conclusion? Verse 2, therefore, And as they say, when you see a therefore, you should ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. And that's actually true. And note how he continues to, the writer continues to say we and us. So he's applying it to himself. If Jesus is greater than everything, even every other biblical reality, so what? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And look at what he says in verse 3. Well, let me, let me go to verse 2. If this is talking about Mount Sinai and the law, and these are Jewish listeners, since the message declared by angels, in other words, the law of Moses, if it proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And that word neglect is worth slowing down to think about. When you neglect something, how does that happen? Like when you neglect something that you either want to be important for you again or to become important for you the first time, 
but you're neglecting it. How does that neglect happen? Sometimes it happens because you're just very familiar with it. It's just kind of always been there, and you mean to give it more time and more energy, but you just take it so for granted because it's just always been there. So we neglect it. The other is the tyranny of the urgent. You ever heard that expression? The tyranny of the urgent just bills, deadlines, work, alarm clock going off, next thing to do, next text, next email, next thing on social media, scroll, 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 just that can just endlessly fill your life so that we never get around to the main things. And so it's not that we've said, that's unimportant. I don't even think that's important. We might say, yeah, that is important. I mean, and that could be exercise or Bible memorization or more time with loved ones or, whatever, or making a will or whatever. Yeah, that's important. I can see the point that that's important. But I just kind of know it's there. And I've got all this on me, and so I neglect it. And the writer says, we must not do that with the Son of God. Do not do that with the Son of God. There is no one and no thing more precious than Him. Uh, I'm trying to think how to drive this home. I may have shared this before, but this, earlier this week, the family was watching TV, and we were just scrolling through the channels, and um, it's an important part of discipleship for us, and uh, so we're scrolling through the channels. But anyway, it was, it, it was on uh, Antiques Roadshow on public TV, saw Antiques Roadshow. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. They'll go to different cities, and pre- people bring their stuff, and there's experts and appraisers, and they'll try to assign a value. And uh, so uh, my daughter, Betsy, had never seen it. And I asked her, have you ever seen the episode about the Navajo blanket? And she said, no. So through the miracle of the Internet, we looked it up. And I I don't know if you've ever seen this episode. It's so good. This just kind of simple guy, old man, brings in this blanket. And you can tell it's an Indian blanket. And it doesn't have the diagonal lines. It's just straight kind of fat lines, maybe three colors. And um, it's hanging up, and the appraiser says, So, Ted, do you know anything about this blanket? And uh, he just said a little bit he knew about it. He said, But we've never really had anybody look at it. And uh, the appraiser said, Ted, did you notice how I kind of stopped breathing when you brought this in? And Ted said, I did notice that. He said, Ted, are you wealthy? And, And... he kind of got the deer in the headlight look and said, no. He said, on a bad day at auction, it turns out it's a Navajo chief blanket. It's unheard of that you would find one of these. It had been hanging off a chair in his house and had hung off the sofa, I think, in his parents' house. It could have been spilled with Kool-Aid 1,100 times and somehow wasn't. He said, Ted... On a bad day at auction, this would bring a value of $350,000, but it would probably now bring a half a million dollars. And this old man, he takes his glasses off and starts to wipe tears and goes, gee, it's like, what? He says, it, like, my grandparents were just poor farmers. It's just been hanging off a chair. He 
See, I, I didn't have any idea. And the, and the appraiser says, Ted, it is a national treasure. It's just electric. Okay, now picture, do you think Ted handled that blanket differently walking out than he did walking in to this convention center? You think about how attentive he must have been. It's like, it's, it's so important. It's so valuable. I had no idea. And you know where I'm going with this. You know, you can, you can grow up around Jesus. And you can grow up around the Bible. You can grow up around words like save. To the point where we forget and we neglect that God loves sinners so much that in this way that we can't get our minds around, His precious Son in heaven with Him, perfect bliss between them, is sent. The Father wants to send Him and the Son wants to go. And He's truly God. And he comes to earth. It's a speck in the Milky Way, much less the universe. He comes to earth and becomes man and remains truly God and is truly man so that he can simultaneously in his life be priest and sacrifice so that people like me and people like you can know that my sins are forgiven forever. And I don't have to keep asking him into my heart or jumping through some hoop or wondering or despairing. I can know I, because of him, I have been saved from perishing. I have been saved from the wrath of God. And what I have now is not just the absence of the wrath of God. I have his love, his adoption, his forgiveness, His approval, His protection, His presence. God was so concerned that these little specks on this speck called earth would be okay that He sent His Son to save them. And the writer is saying, do not lay down next to that and fall asleep. Don't even let another Bible reality distract you from that. Nothing is more precious than that. Are you neglecting Jesus? It's sure easy to do. And I speak from experience, and I fall back into it all the time. And here's what I want to say to you, twofold. We must not do that. But I don't just want to, because that could sound like a scolding. I want to say this. If up to this moment right now you have neglected Jesus, that does not have to define you. If you have a long past of neglecting Him or a short past of neglecting Him, our neglect of Jesus does not have to define us. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Because it's so great. It's the best news ever, and we can do that right now.
If we don't do that, then this was just a nice reflection. If you've neglected Jesus, and we do it all the time, talk to God and be honest and say, I, I'm neglecting Him. I think more about my marriage than Him. I think more about being single than Him. I think more about retirement than Him. I think more about financial need than Him. And I, I just don't want to do that anymore. Have mercy on me. And that would be a great prayer. Um, I'm, let me end with this. I, I got to be at a prayer meeting this past Monday, and it was, it was different pastors from Greenville. And we met up in one of the taller buildings downtown so we could sort of see over the city, and we prayed together. It was really great. Someone else initiated it. And this older Baptist minister was there. And everything that is best about an older Baptist minister, he was like Exhibit A. Just a dear, sweet, southern man. And he, uh, through a strange set of circumstances, he has gone on staff with New Spring. And he grew up super traditional church background, and now he's on staff with New Spring. And he was joking about, so my first day on staff, I put on blue jeans for the first time in my life and uh, like went to the staff meeting. You know, and he's like tripled everyone else's age. But he, he just said he just loved being with this staff. And, and here's his description of the staff, and then I'm done. He said, of the staff of New Spring, he said, these folks hadn't gotten over being saved. And that really got me. Like, they are still sort of shocked and clearly energized about it. And he said, most of my we just got used to it a long time ago. They have not gotten over being saved. Let's pray that we never, ever get over this great salvation. Let's pray. Father, if we who profess faith, if we have fallen asleep right next to the gospel if we're neglecting it with our time and our energy and our insides then rouse us from our sleep and empower us to pay much closer attention to what we've heard and to feast on it and to drink it in Father if there's someone here who's never paid close attention to it and their whole life has been neglect, would you give him or her this morning, of all mornings, eyes to see and ears to hear? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.